So, some of you may know that I spent a lot of time in India. Uh, I, for several years, about 15 years ago, I was commuting to India every week or two. Uh, like, once or twice every month. I mean, I literally made dozens of trips to India every year. Uh, so, uh, I want to show you some things from India that are a little bit different than what we're used to seeing here. Can you see the pictures, Adrian? Okay, good. Um, so what do we think about when we think about India? Do we think about poor people? Uh, when I was a kid, my mother used to say, there are starving children in India, so you should finish your food. And I would say, good, I'll send it to Airmail. <laughs> so starving children in African India made me what I am today. <laughs> uh, there they are. They got cows. Um, and uh, the cows and horses sort of wander around in India. These people are not quite as poor as some because they have a horse. Uh, and here's some who do not have a horse. And they're just pushing their food carts along uh, to sell at the market. And I like to say that the blue poly tarp is God's gift to the squatters in India. Uh, these people, this is just public right away along a road and they're, they just sort of can't. That's where they live. <clears throat> and here's some construction workers having their lunch on a pile of dirt. <clears throat> or maybe, we think about friendly people in India. <clears throat> These are two young people that I met, brother and sister that I met in the wedding we're going to talk about later. And I can tell you some funny stories about them, but I won't right now. Uh, I like to meet people all over the world, and I've had the privilege of meeting people all over the world. This is my Indian soul brother. He's the only Adventist high-tech entrepreneur in India with his uh, wife and his two daughters. And uh, I spent many a Sabbath meal at the table with them, which is what we're about to do when I took this picture. Uh, these, there's a dozen people here. It's 12.1, you've got just, or 12.05 or whatever. You've got just an arm of a 13th person there. Uh, these people I met, this is an extended family. These people I met in Delhi... Uh, this is the Congress Hill in Delhi, which is sort of like the mall in Washington, D.C. The main buildings in India, the government buildings are around this hill. And then across the street is a park. And uh, here they are again. There are 14 of them in this picture. Those 12 that you saw in the last picture. And I just uh, got acquainted with these people on a Sabbath afternoon. That The technical name for this thing is an auto rickshaw, but in India they call them a tuk-tuk. Because it goes tuk 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 uh, it's a motor, motor scooter on steroids. Uh, the front of it's like a motor scooter. There's an engine back under the rear seat here, a little two-cylinder motor scooter engine. Uh, yep, 14 people in there, um, uh, extended family. Uh, it's the same people as the other slide. Uh, right there sitting, you, this is the Congress Hall right over here. That would be the equivalent of the Capitol building uh, in the U.S. There they are, right there. All of them crammed into one uh, motor scooter on steroids. Friendly people in India. Love, love, love the people of India. Mughal monuments. Uh, this is the summer palace in... Um, uh, now i got to think which town that's in. I want to say Mangalore, but it isn't Mangalore. Uh, but it's another town down there, south of Bangalore. Um, uh, this 
is called the Kitab. It's the world's tallest masonry minaret built entirely. They got some taller ones now with steel frames. That's 240 feet high. There's no way to take a picture of that thing and get a notion of the scale. It's almost 50 feet wide at the base. They started building that around the time of the Norman Conquest in the 1000s AD, and then they added on to it. Um, that one you've seen pictures of before. What about pagan temples? You think about pagan temples you see in India. There's a Hindu temple. Uh, that one I did not go in. Uh, when you go into the temples in India, you have to take your shoes off. And quite frankly, given the uh, cows and the dogs uh, and whatever else wandering around there, and the fact that they eventually go around with a shovel and a bucket, uh, I just decided I wasn't going to take my shoes off and go in there. I'm sorry. It wasn't my thing. Has anybody seen this one before? This is called the Lotus Temple. That is a Sikh temple in Delhi, and some consider that to be the most beautiful building in Delhi. It looks like a lotus flower, see? The whole thing is designed like a flower. Beautiful, beautiful temple. This is uh, a Buddhist temple, Tibetan Buddhists. Uh, when the Chinese occupied Tibet, a number of these, uh, including the Dalai Lama, by the way, they all fled to India. Now, the Dalai Lama has since moved on to the U.S. But there's like some little Tibetan Buddhist colonies in India, and this is their colony. They have a seminary there, and this is their temple, and there it is on the inside. Amazing, just spectacular. So maybe pagan temples. Now, maybe we think about mission offerings. Uh, that's the Adventist Church, uh, the English-speaking Adventist Church on Cunning Cunnington Road, or Cunningham Road in uh, Bangalore. Uh, this was the mission headquarters in Bangalore, and the Adventists did what they so often do. They, uh, I don't know when they bought that piece of land, but most of the land right next to that is a shopping center. Uh, they did the same thing, by the way, in uh, Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Eventually they sold land for a shopping center because land is worth more. But the church is still there. That's, that is my church in India that I went to many, many times. Uh, this is another thing that was paid for my mission offerings. Lowry Memorial College, which is uh, past its prime. Uh, that's an Adventist hospital in Bangalore that was built with 13th Sabbath offerings. If any of you remember 13th Sabbath offerings from when you were a kid or something, uh, people gave offerings all over the world, and that was dedicated about 50 years ago right now. Um, and it still is a nice hospital, although today Bangalore is a city of about 10 million people. So these things are not that. And that's the um, Adventist... Uh, Day Academy. It was originally a boarding academy. Kids from kindergarten through 12th grade go to that school. So maybe we think about mission offerings going to India, right? Uh, now, I'm going to change the subject. What about weddings? What do we think about when we, when we um, think about weddings? Maybe we think about church weddings, right? So there's a church wedding for you, a classic church wedding. That is the French Huguenot Church in um, Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, and I know all the people in that wedding. In fact, if one were to look very carefully, you could see Jim and Renee sitting in a corner of the picture. Uh, so is that what you think of as a wedding? And you can't even see the whole wedding party. There's even more of them off to the left that didn't make it into this particular frame. So maybe we think about a nice, elegant church wedding, which that one was. 
Uh, or that was a much simpler wedding, a very simple wedding, uh, but a very precious one to me. Uh, so there was only two attendants. I had a best man and she had a matron of honor, and uh, that was it. Uh, that's in a church in Michigan on a Sabbath morning we got married. Or this one here, a unity candle. Those are also some very important people to me that uh, most of you here have met these people. That's my oldest son, David, and his lovely bride. So maybe we think about church weddings. Or maybe we think about the first wedding, which, by the way, happened on a Friday night. So when my mother said I should not get married in church on Sabbath morning, I said, if Adam and Eve could get married on Friday night, I can get married on Sabbath morning. And we did. So here's the way the Bible describes the, the first wedding. The Lord God made a woman from the rib. The then, if we read uh, in the Genesis narrative, we're pretty sure this happened on Friday afternoon, although we can't say that for certain because there's a disconnect between Genesis 1 and 2. He brought her to the man, and now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Okay, that's actually a very important thing to understand. There was nothing to be ashamed of. There was no sin, there was no guilt, there was no quarreling, there was no nothing. And if this were a fairy tale, it would now say, what would it say? And they lived happily ever after, right? Unfortunately, after a while the honeymoon was over. In the next chapter of Genesis, now the honeymoon's over. At that moment their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they strung fig leaves together to cover themselves. Did it work? Not very well, okay? So here's the first lesson we can learn from this one. We can't build ourselves up by trying to cover our defects, all right? Uh, you know, that was their first, their first attempt. It was their first reaction. Okay, well, let's cover up here. We got a problem. Let's cover up. Now, I have something that every one of you here needs to think about. Every one of us put on fig leaves this morning to come to church, okay? We do. There are more fig leaves probably in church than anywhere else. Because we come here, we're going to be good, happy Christians, you know, regardless of what happened yesterday or whether we argued with our wife this morning or, or you know, our kids caused us to ruckus or whatever, right? So we all put on our fig leaves to come to church. Does it work? Maybe we fool some of the people around us. We don't fool God. And to the extent that we are mentally healthy, we're not fooling ourselves. However, sin is, causes mental illness in all of us. Okay? So that's lesson number one. Now, now what happens? The Lord God calls to Adam, where are you? And he said, I heard you, so I hid. I was afraid because it was naked. Alright, so here's the next thing. Oh my, we're in trouble. We have blown it. I hear God coming. I wonder if he's going to kill us. He said, if we did this, we're going to die. He's probably coming to kill us. We are, you know, we have, we have blown it, right? This is what they're thinking. Why would you hide from God? Well, he's probably going to kill us now because we did what we weren't supposed to do. So here we learn the thing, the next lesson from this. We can't build ourselves up by tearing ourselves down, okay? See, these are the two most common reactions to our defects. Denial, let's cover it up. Let's pretend it didn't happen, let's pretend nobody can see. Or the self, you know, destruction. So, you see what I'm saying? So these go way back. So, 
This is uh, what happens when the honeymoon's over. All right, so then the Lord God asked, have you eaten the fruit? Yes, Adam admitted, but it was the woman who gave me, that you gave me, who brought me the fruit. So here we get to the next one. What are they doing now? We can't build ourselves up by tearing other people down. Doesn't work, all right? So, so we got the whole gamut right here. Uh, and we do this, all right? We tear ourselves down, we try to deny, we try to tear ourselves down, or we try to cut, uh, tear other people down. It's the lady's fault. It's your fault, God. You know, the serpent made me do it. Or, you know, he started it first. Or, um, the pick your favorite religion other than ours. They are the bad people. You know, somebody else, right? We're tearing somebody else down. Uh, it's the government. I, I jumped too fast. It's the government. It's the, maybe it's the Pope. Maybe it's, um, uh, you know, pick your favorite conspiracy group. Uh, the Jews did it. The Muslims did it. You know, there's always somebody to blame, right? Uh, the conference. That's a popular one with Adventists, okay? <laughs> Find somebody to blame. Tear somebody down, right? The pastor, he's not here today. He's probably not listening, <laughs> All right, there's always somebody to blame. My kids, you know, insanity is hereditary. I get it from my kids. You know, there's always somebody to blame. All right, it doesn't work. We can't build ourselves up by tearing other people down. Uh, and then the other thing is we can't build our church up by tearing other people down. So now I'm really meddling. Okay? I better stop here pretty soon or Bob will never ask me to preach again. <laughs> All right? You know, we'll tear down somebody else in our church or we'll tear down some other religion. Uh, you know, it's the the Calvinists, it's the Catholics, it's the whoever, right? It's their fault. They're the bad guys. They're the people who are causing the problem, right? We don't build a church up by tearing other people down. Okay? Doesn't work. Does not work. So, now, there's multiple threads being woven here. Uh, what about Hindu weddings, all right? That first wedding is, you know, some important takeaways from that. What about Hindu weddings? So one time when I was in India, <clears throat> a software architect who was working for me there told me, very bright young man, told me, I, you won't see me the next time you come because I'm getting married this weekend and I will be you know, off on honeymoon. They went to the Maldives for their honeymoon. Uh, so I said, wow, you're getting married this weekend. I've never been to a Hindu wedding. This could be fun. He said, would you like to come? I said, I'd love to come. So the next day, he gives me a little scroll, which I probably still have somewhere. Calligraphy, fancy calligraphy on this scroll, my wedding invitation. Now, I was in Bangalore. The wedding was in Delhi. So I um, contacted my travel agent, or the company's travel agent, to be precise, and said, we've had a slight change of plans here. Instead of me flying to um, uh, Chennai on Monday and then flying from there to Bangkok and from there to San Fran or wherever I was going, uh, I said, uh, I'm going to go to Delhi this weekend. And then I'll fly, you know, make a little detour here. So they booked the arrangements and the company had a driver waiting for me when I landed in Delhi. And so I went to this wedding. And... We don't understand when we read the Bible, if you have not been to a wedding from an Eastern culture, 
you have no idea what the Bible's talking about. Okay? Because they do it very differently than we do. The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. And I'm going to show you a great wedding feast in a minute. And it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast lamb. I had my invitation. I had my little scroll. And that was my you know, ticket to the wedding feast. So, in India, the wedding feast goes on for a week or two. And if you have the money, you rent a wedding park. This wedding park was about 10 acres. That didn't include the parking lot outside. About 8 or 10 acres, I would estimate, was the size of this thing. This is just a piece of it. This is just one. And there's all these pavilions here. Uh, and for different purposes. Uh, there is a wedding feast. Though Every one of these little kiosks here has somebody making some kind of food. And you just walk up and take what you want. Okay? That's just part of it. This is at night, you notice. The, the, they're not stupid. It's hot in Delhi in the day. Okay, so they party at night. So I got there by the time my plane landed, and they, you know, we checked into the hotel and, and then gave the driver the invitation, which had an address on it, and he knew where it was. So it was probably 8 o'clock when I got there in the evening. And the party was already going. Uh, there's some more food pavilions. Uh, I sort of was prominent there because I was the only pale face at this party. Hundreds, hundreds of people there. May have, maybe a thousand people, I don't know. And everybody's just walking around talking to each other and partying. And uh, you sort of get the picture here. It's just indescribable. And this goes on for a week or two. Every night, they party. Okay? That is a great wedding feast. All right. Uh, here's another pavilion. There's one, I could show you more pictures, but I don't have all day. There's one I call it like the Indian mosh pit. There was like this dance floor with lights flashing on, and then the kids were dancing there and all this. All right. But we haven't seen the bride or the groom. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and welcome him. And you may not think of this one as a bridegroom, but it is. Okay? Then I saw heaven open, and a white horse was standing there, and the one sitting on the horse was named Faithful and True. And he's described in other places as having a white robe and a red sash. And an ostrich plume on the turban in his hat. And he arrived about 11.30 at night, Riding a white horse. Nobody knew when he was going to come. Now, the, the, an astrologer picked the, op, the auspicious date for the wedding and the auspicious time for the ride up. It was going to be at night. So, at 11, and I didn't get a picture of the white horse, I'm sorry, but he came riding on a white horse. He's the bridegroom, okay? And there he is. That's not the bride, by the way. That is his brother and his sister-in-law next to him. His, his older brother is sort of like his sponsor. All right? But there he is. I don't have the white horse, unfortunately. All right. See, you don't even visualize this uh, in our culture. It makes no sense, right? But if you see this, it makes perfect sense. That's what they're talking about. So, 
Then he saw the holy, new, holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a beautiful bride prepared for her husband. Some say adorned for her husband. Where is the bride? Nobody has seen the bride. The bride is sitting in a room surrounded by her family getting ready for to meet the bridegroom. But she doesn't come out. Um, only her close relatives go in to see her. I went into, not into the room where the bride was, but into the bride house, I'll call it, and talked to the family and all that. And, you know, I, I visit. Uh, but nobody sees the bride. All right. Now, come with me. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. There she is. She is covered with gold from the top of her head all the way down to her toes. You see all that jewelry on her, on her, um, on her wrists and her fingers, the rings and everything? There's every bit as much on her ankles and her toes. Gold, jewels, pearls. There's no way that a picture can even convey this. It's not fake. That's real. That's her dowry. Okay. Uh, there is... You know, the, the, the um, shawl, her gown, all embroidered with gold, jewels. Uh, she's got a huge gold uh, uh, piece of jewelry in her nose even. I mean, everywhere. She's covered. Okay, That is a bride adorned for her husband. And unlike Adam and Eve, who hid... In shame, she's not ashamed. She's proud to go meet her bride because she is wearing, she is covered, okay, from the top of her head to the soles of her feet, adorned for her husband. You don't visualize this, you know, when you read this in the Bible, unless you see something like this. I, I can't even describe it. It's the most amazing thing. You know, I took the picture. I was close enough to her to get a picture, but... The picture doesn't even begin to convey this. And it's not rented. It's all real. Uh, we have a slang expression called family jewels. This is the family jewels. Okay. It's, it, it's just incredible. So, look, the home of God is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. There is the house where they will spend. This is all in the wedding part. Um, that's their house, at least for the duration of this wedding. It's just, you know, it's just stunning. You can't imagine. <laughs> so, now the question, how does God see us? Okay? Very important question. In fact, it is one of the most important questions that there is. Because we will not see ourselves better than God sees us. Okay? If you remember Sonia, the last time she talked, she talked about our image of God. We never rise above our image of God. Remember, any, remember her saying this? All right. So how God sees us is just, it's one of the most important questions there is. So now, we're gonna, I'm going to go back to this other one. We're not quite done with that. I don't want to call it the first wedding, but after the first honeymoon was over. The Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Now this is weird, right? 
What does this have to do with anything we're talking about? Well, you're going to find out. Where did those animal skins come from? The sacrifice. Okay? So, God, after he takes Adam and Eve and says, sorry, you've got to leave the garden, and furthermore, you deserve to die, but hold on a minute. There's more to the story. Adam, come here. Take that ram. Okay, lay it down. Slit its throat. Hold on to it. It's going to die. You're going to learn about death. You're not going to die. You're going to learn about death. All right, Eve, take that lamb. Slit its throat. Watch it die. Okay, now, you've tried to cover yourselves with fig leaves. Doesn't work. You're going to be covered with the sacrifice. Okay? So, God takes those, and we don't know how he did it, God made the clothing for them. Their own clothing was useless. It was a fig leaf. I mean, we still have that word in the language, all right? Which means an attempt to cover yourself that basically is pretty much pointless, right? God says, okay, you're going to be covered with the garments of the sacrifice. I'm going to make a covering for you, all right? That's really important thing to understand here. You may not have thought about this, but that's you know, that's part of that lesson. So, what does this mean? Paul explains this in Galatians. For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Okay? They wore the sacrifice. Symbol. You see what I'm saying? And that is what Paul says we do. Okay? We wear the sacrifice. Now, it goes a little bit farther. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's no more blaming other people, blaming yourself. Not only is there no more trying to cover up and deny, you're going to be one in Christ Jesus. And that's not just... <clears throat> Seventh-day Adventists. You're all children through faith in Christ Jesus. All who have been united with Christ in baptism. Okay, there's probably a billion or more people in this world right now who have been baptized. Maybe 20 million of them are Seventh-day Adventists. All right? So, this all is very important. And he says in his day, the Jews, the Gentiles, major distinction here, right? All. It's the very next verse after, you know, after 27, 28. It's the same passage. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We, the people in this room, we, the people who may be watching on Zoom, we, the people in the other churches meeting today, we, the people in the, all over the world, not just you know, us who are going to have to have our own little private enclave in heaven because we don't believe anybody else is going to be there. You know, the old joke. It's not just Adventists that tell that joke. It's also Baptists and Lutherans. They all tell the same joke, okay? All, one in Christ Jesus. So now I want to read something else to you. Christ, the heavenly merchant man, seeking goodly pearls, saw in lost humanity the pearl of Christ. In man, defiled and ruined by sin, he saw the possibilities of redemption. I'm going to stop right here, and I'm going to say something else. Do you know that God has double vision? Do you know that? You know what double vision is? You see two images, right? Or in your case, 
you probably got some double vision right now, right? Because one eye has been fixed and not the other one, right? So what you see in one eye and what you see in the other eye are very different. Yep, yep. Uh, I used to wear contact lenses. One day, one of my contacts broke. I was at a, um, I was actually working at the Lake Region Conference campground on a project there. And I was a pretty good ping pong player in those days. Um, a very good ping pong player. And uh, like my brother and I used to practice for hours every day. Um, try playing it with one contact in and the other one out. It was terrible. But you know what? God's got double vision. How does God have double vision? He sees us as we are. Okay. But he also sees the possibilities of redemption. He sees the pearl of price. He sees what we can become through his power. God looked upon humanity, not as vile and worthless. He looked upon it in Christ, saw it as it might become through redeeming love. See, which eye? Two eyes. He sees us as we are. He also sees us as we are going to become through Christ. He collected all the riches of the universe and laid them down in order to buy the pearl. Okay. Did you know that in the parable of the pearl, at least according to this author, good little book if you've never read it. It's only about that thick. Very good little book about the parables of Jesus. The pearl is us. The merchant man who gave up everything to get that pearl was Jesus. Okay? So, and Richard, you might want to... They will be my people, says the Lord Almighty. On the day when I act, they will be my own special treasure. Okay? So what does God see when he sees us? That's what God sees. That's what God sees when he sees us as individuals. That's also what God sees when he looks at this church. Okay? We are... In ourselves, we are feeble, we are defective. We're not always nice to each other. We don't agree on everything. We can't do many of the things that we want to do. Okay? But this is what God sees when he looks at us. Individually, as a church, as the bride of Christ. <laughs>